I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Antonio Master Berardino, Piero's father, who died on January 28th at the age of 86. As Piero explained in this interview, Antonio took over the family winery at the age of 17 when his own father died, and he was instrumental in the continuation of planting indigenous grape varieties in this region of Italy. Piero Master Berardino today here on the show. Hello, sir. How are you? Excellent. Thank you. Very nice to have you here. My pleasure. Thank you. For many years, many years, your family has been based in the Campania in southern Italy and associated with wine production. What's the history of the Mastro Berardino winery? Yes, my family has been in the area for uh, quite a long time, more than two centuries, 10 generations. I'm the representative of the 10 generation of the family in the wine business. Uh, that means a lot uh, because uh, this region uh, was really an important turning point for the diffusion of uh, wine culture in the world. And so my family has been, uh, in some sense, uh, a preserver uh, of uh, these uh, ancient uh, roots and values of uh, Greek and Latin uh, uh, grapes and wines. Ten generations, uh, of course, uh, mean means even uh, different periods of evolution of uh, wine culture in the, in the modern and contemporary life. And so uh, in the first period, of course, it was more a, a local, regional or an independent Italian peninsula distribution. That, but uh, at the end of 1800s, it became an international project because I had uh, this uh, great-grandfather that was really a pioneer that was able to open the markets uh, starting in 1878. So this was really a turning point for us, for, for I mean, I think for the Italian wine movement. So your family is associated with several different grape varieties that have been grown for over a century. One of them is Alianico, which is the grape variety often that is uh, the grape variety for Tarassi. How would you describe the Alianico grape and how would you describe Tarassi as a wine? Well, first of all, uh, uh, in the area, yes, we have several indigenous grapes, uh, several very ancient grapes. Aglianico, for sure, is the most important, probably the most representative. And it was even in the past the most representative, because you have to consider that uh, one century ago, uh, 90, 95% of the production of the area was made of... Uh, of red wines based on Aglianico, the big Aglianico. But there are very interesting grapes uh, in the area that we can, of course, uh, list, like a Fiano for Fiano di Avellino, the Greco for Greco di Tufo, and so on. Aglianico is the most interesting uh, because, first of all, is the most uh, ancient and at the same time modern message of our viticulture. It's probably one of the most ageable wines in the world. Uh, Aglianico grape uh, comes from the Greek origin of the Vitis Hellenica, so-called by the Romans, that found this grape in the southern part of our peninsula, because it was 
brought there in the Magna Grecia period of colonization, that's the, the current uh, official literature in Italy, and uh, um, the ancient Vitis Hellenica that then became an um, Aglianico during the years, uh, the centuries mainly, and uh, it's um, the most representative uh, uh, red grape uh, in general sense uh, in southern Italy, uh, and one uh, of the most uh, appreciated in all over Italy now, on which we are doing a lot of research and innovation because of the interest of these very ancient roots. Aglianico is a grape that uh, has a very late period of maturation. We are currently picking the white grapes and we will start picking the Aglianico grapes at the beginning of November and will end the harvest at mid-November. So this is a very interesting and unusual condition, probably the last grape to be harvested all over Italy. And um, it's extremely interesting because it can be, of course, used for the very top Taurasi DOCG wines in the very good selection with a little bit more ripening and with a, a nice complexity on the plants before harvesting. So this is strategic to get very good Taurasi. Uh, at the same time, it's a very interesting grape also um, when you pick it just a bit earlier, uh, with a little higher acidity. I mean, uh, our viticulture is improving a lot in this last 30, 40 years. And uh, this is uh, uh, really interesting to show the versatility of Aglianico. We produce a rosé wine that is a beautiful, elegant, gentle uh, wine with a typical bouquet of a white wine, but with the body with the body of red. So we produce from Aglianico also an Oberroth wine uh, that is uh, a wine beautiful for the ser pairings and uh, uh, I mean this is really uh, out of scale in terms of uh, characteristics uh, organolectic profiles uh, so from Aglianico we I mean we really are having a lot of uh, satisfaction and, and success. One of the wines that's most famous in history from your winery is the 1968 Tarasi Reserver, of which there's actually a few different bottlings. Um, how would have the conditions been different back in 68 or even before that, because your family was growing Alianico even before? What, what changed for the production of Tarasi and the production of Alianico from, say, the 1930s till now? Well, yes, this is very interesting. I mean, uh, the style of the wines, of course, changes with the uses, with the ways of consumption. So we have beautiful, elegant wines because we are in the mountains. This is extremely important to point out. Our production is made in Irpinia. Irpinia is a very small wine district located in the inland of Campania, east of Napoli, the Bay of Naples, 50 kilometers east. That means not that far, but a completely different microenvironment, microclimate in terms of you know elevation and difference of temperature between night and day. It's very cold at night. And this mountain wine, are uh, um, expressed in terms of elegance, finesse, uh, and uh, not the overpower of extraction that somebody uh, usually expects from people from wines coming from south, uh, thinking of you know the, the the coast, the sea, and the sun, and high temperatures, and so on. No, this is not. This is typical mountain wines, and so elegance and finesse. And uh, this character stays there during the decades, even for very old bottles. So we've got bottles from the 20s, from the 30s, that really express this, this beautiful finesse and uh, still express uh, freshness. Those wines before World War II, at the beginning of, uh, of the last century, were wines with a um, higher content in alcohol. There were about 15 uh, in alcohol. Uh, so this is a matter of style, of course, uh, of the wines and probably even uh, a matter of uh, uh, ways of intending wine consumption. After the war, we have a change. Wines uh, are uh, still very, very elegant, uh, but the alcohol content is lower. It goes uh, down to a 12.5. Uh, wines are... Um, uh, extremely interesting, have a beautiful refining due to the long period in the bottle. But what is interesting uh, to focus on is uh, the fact that uh, the viticultural conditions were extremely different from the ones we have now, due not only to a matter of technical knowledge, but even to 
the conditions of the environment, so the roads, were not there. Uh, there were no uh, uh, fast ways to bring the grapes to the cellar. And uh, there was no possibility to pick all the grapes in the harvest time in a limited amount of time. So the harvest was very long. Uh, it used to end uh, by beginning of December, mid-December, for the regular uh, grapes for, for Taurasi. This meant that uh, we had on the grapes several times we had snow. And at the same time, once picked, the grapes were sent to the sellers uh, and they had to be, you know, stressed a lot uh, during uh, the, the, the trip, uh, the journey. This means that the conditions of the grapes at the beginning of the winemaking process were much worse than uh, the ones that we can get now. The wines we have now from the 60s, from the 50s, from <clears throat> the beginning of the 70s are... Uh, Beautiful, beautiful wines. Uh, sometimes uh, journalists say, uh, some journalists say, we think that uh, uh, you, we, we, we won't have wines that will be elegant like those. <clears throat> and uh, I'm not sure about that. I think that uh, the, the, the starting conditions of the grapes are so different that the wines we are producing now, probably in 50 years, will express a beautiful uh, elegance and finesse. And um, I really appreciate the wines from the 60s because they are for us the roots and they are the best message to make people understand what is the potential of this area, of these grapes and of this uh, extraordinary terroir of Irpinia. So how's it gone with the codification of what Tarasi as a wine is? I think that the Tarasi zone was delimited by the government and regulated after the 1968 was produced for the first time. And then there has been further changes to DOC to DOCG. What has changed over time and how what is defined as Tarasi or Tarasi Reserva uh, has come to be? The tradition of Taurasi, of course, as a wine and as a viticultural district is very old. The area from which we produce now was already described by the Romans as the Campi Taurasini wines. So that's uh, uh, the reason for giving uh, this ancient name to this wine when in the beginning of the 60s of, of last century, the first Italian law on uh, the appellation, the first DOC and DOCG law came out. The first law was in, in 1963. And uh, from that point, uh, uh, of course, my father was able to uh, put together all the documents concerning the history of this wine in the family distribution in the world. And uh, uh, in 1970, uh, we were able to get uh, uh, you know, the homologation by the government of these important uh, rules for the production of Taurasi, DOC, DOC first. And then in uh, 92, we have the passage to the DOCG. Um, changes. I mean, the area uh, remained exactly the same. It was the traditional area in which my father had been experienced uh, the relaunch, the reimplantation of uh, the most vocated vineyards uh, after World War II. My grandfather died in 1945. My father was, eight, was 17 years old. He was still uh, facing his uh, uh, preparation in the school and then university, but he took care of uh, the, the production of the winery at the time. He had this older brother, Angelo, that died uh, earlier in, in 1978, but uh, that was older than him, and uh, his brother helped him uh, in going on in his studies of uh, enology. And um, at the same time, my father was able to, even if he was so young, to convince people to go in the line tracked by the family, Mastro Berardino family, to reimplant the vineyards and uh, to go on in this very old and important tradition of the uh, original grapes of Campania <clears throat> and Irpinia. This was very important because uh, my, my father in the 60s uh, started reproposing these wines abroad uh, very uh, strongly. He started uh, at the end of the uh, 50s, uh, first uh, in Europe and then in the Americas, mainly in North America, while uh, uh, one century ago even Latin America was very strong for our wines. But, uh, he started um, from uh, Canada and United States, uh, relaunching these uh, big uh, 
big um, versions of Taurasi going back to 58, 61. And then, of course, 68 was uh, the mm, probably the most important expression of this wine on U.S. market and f- from U.S. market for all over the world. In Italy, uh, it was already well known, but uh, the big appreciation for this wine came from the success on the US market mainly. We still have people here from the restaurant business that have bottles from this period, from 61, 68. And uh, <clears throat> when I'm around, uh, you know, visiting uh, uh, restaurants and arranging wine dinners, uh, it, it, op- um, it often happens to have people that are, you know, so proud to show this bottle, to make me sign this bottle for them and, uh, you know, to present to their customers the length and uh, credibility of a terroir like, like Irpinia has interpreted by Mastro Berardino family for such a long time. So 68 is, is extremely interesting because it's another turning point of this story due to the success on the market on one side, but uh, before that, due to the fact that my father in that vintage, that was an extraordinary legendary vintage in terms of quality and quantity, was able to plan a first selection of vineyards from different zones of uh, uh, the the wine district of Taurasi. And so he was able to produce not only the uh, regular uh, Taurasi dell'annata of the vintage, he was able to produce uh, even a a reserva version and he was able to produce even three different selections coming from three most vocated zones. One is Montemarano, the second is Castelfranche and the third was Piano d'Angelo at that time. And those three labels became icons for the wine lovers. Uh, and uh, still now there are people that collect, uh, you know, the different uh, and try to find on the on the market, but mainly in the auctions and maybe bottles that uh, still have this uh, different appellation. So Montemorano is an area that you source a lot of Alianico grapes from today. What's Montemorano like as a place? Well, you have to consider that even if Irpinia is very small uh, as uh, a wine district, uh, we have several different conditions. That's why in this last uh, 30 years, we have had a very important day-by-day work in terms of selection of the different uh, areas and different conditions of soil, stratifications of soil, of course, exposures and elevation. So Montemarano is interesting because uh, it has uh, a particular... uh, Microenvironment, with uh, it's colder than other areas of Taurasi. Uh, it's a bit higher. We uh, we reach about 600 meters of elevation in the upper part of the estate from which we produce our uh, Radici Taurasi and, and Radici Taurasi Reserva. It's uh, extremely interesting uh, um, for uh, the soil, for uh, the the average temperature compared to other parts. That's why we pick the grapes. Uh, uh, and, you know, the, the latest uh, harvest comes from the Montemarano estate. We've got uh, four different estates in the Taurasi di OCG area. We've got four in the Fiano area, the Fiano di Avellino di OCG. We've got four in the Greco di Tufo di OCG. Uh, so we've got... Uh, quite wide uh, network of observation on the whole Irpinia wine district. Montemarano is extremely interesting. Of course, we have in Mirabella a beautiful, rounder, a bit softer, um, milder climate uh, with a bit uh, higher average temperature. We pick the grapes about 10 days before the average of Montemarano harvest. And it's, it's extremely interesting for us to taste the differences among all these uh, vineyards and all uh, all these uh, locations, uh, Montemarano for sure gives this uh, very deep and long and wide um, expression of different flavors that makes this wine so complex and so interesting. You make a few different bottlings of Alianico today. What are those different bottlings of Alianico and then Tarasi? And how did they get started and when? And what are the differences between them? So today we have um, for Taurasi, uh, the OCG, two main uh, wines. One is Naturalis Historia, the OCG, and uh, um, it comes from uh, a special, very old vineyard, 50 years old, 
vineyard located in the estate of Mirabella Eclano. So the elevation will be about uh, 535-50 meters on the sea level um, and uh, it's a little bit uh, rounder and milder hill. It's one of the oldest vineyards we have, so the production has always been uh, very performing from that uh, uh, area. Um, the soil is a uh, typical uh, limestone mm, clay soil with uh, a stratification that gives the evidence of a presence of uh, ash. Uh, this is the influence of, of course, the, 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 the volcanic uh, soil that is typical of the whole uh, region due to the presence, of course, of Vesuvio that is not far from there. Consider that in 1944, the last eruption of Vesuvio, we had about uh, uh, 50 centimeters of uh, ash in the soil, in the cellar, that is uh, 50 kilometers far from the, the volcano. Uh, so the presence of Vesuvius is very strong. So this is uh, the, 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 the main components of this soil that is very mineral, of course. Uh, then, uh, due to the elevation and the, and the temperature, we have a very nice uh, acidity for all these wines. That is an important uh, character for the longevity. Naturalis Historia is extremely interesting. It's, uh, it's late harvested uh, and then uh, it has a, no a long uh, period of maceration. And uh, it, a difference uh, between Naturalis Historia and the Radici Taurasi, that is uh, probably the best known uh, wine that we produce, the flagship of the family, uh, is also in the assembly in the wood uh, refining, because in Naturalis Historia we use uh, barriques, we use only barriques, uh, even if they are not new, they are second and third passage barriques, but uh, we only use the, 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 the small uh, casks. While for Radici Taurasi we use a lot of the traditional uh, uh, medium-sized barrel of Slavonian oak, about uh, uh, 50 hectoliters big. Now, of course, another difference is... Uh, the origin, the vineyard, because uh, Historia comes from 100% grapes from this uh, special uh, old vine vineyard in uh, Mirabella Estate. Radici Taurasi, the black label, that is the, the young Radici Taurasi, comes from a blend of two different estates uh, of the family. One is in, uh, located in Mirabella, in the, in the second hill of the estate of Mirabella, the central hill. And the second uh, part comes from uh, Montemarano estate uh, that I described already. And uh, so it's a very intriguing wine because uh, it has together the characters of softness and roundness of Mirabella terroir and uh, the, the strength and the depth, uh, the, the masculine character of Montemarano micro conditions of environment. So this was the success from the beginning of Radici Taurasi, a wine that started with the first harvest in 1986 because the project of viticulture started at the beginning of 1980s, uh, right after the earthquake. Uh, so Radici Taurasi was uh, the, the big success of, uh, of our Taurasi line uh, because uh, it was a turning point in terms of viticulture. Uh, during the 80s, my father started uh, increasing the density of implantation a lot and went all the way up to the current uh, density, that is 4,500 uh, of average uh, per hectare. And uh, this, uh, together with this density of implantation, uh, he was able to get a, a, a better ripening of the grapes, of course, and uh, a little bit higher softness ratio uh, that means uh, a balance between uh, the pH, uh, acidity, and, of course, the content sugar of sugar. So uh, this was uh, uh, extremely helpful because in the past, before this uh, innovation, Taurasi mm, had... Uh, to stay in the bottle a little bit longer to get this uh, roundness and softness of mainly of tannins and uh, now that the tannic contribution is still very very important and strong in the wines but it's softer it's a, it's, it's a very delicate tannin compared to the ones from the past that took very long time to, to refine. Radici Taurasi has this reserva version, which we discussed, that comes from a single vineyard in Montemarano, from the upper part of the vineyard. And so even in the concept of reserva, it's different from uh, you know, the, the reserva, the typical reserva for Italian law on, on the wines. Because usually reserva is uh, a, a sub-appellation that you can put on a bigger uh, wine when it's uh, refined more, so with a longer aging. In this case, it's not just a matter of longer aging that, that also stays there. For reserva, of course, we have a longer aging. But uh, 
it starts from the vineyard. So the reserva of Radici Taurasi starts from the vineyard, from, uh, the selection comes from only from this upper part of the Montemarano estate, and this means that we can have a, a wide variety in terms of quantity of production of this wine because some vintages we, we are able to produce uh, even 12, 15,000 bottles, sometimes 20,000 bottles, and some others uh, just 4,000 bottles. Some others we don't produce it any, uh, at all. And um, like like happened uh, in, uh, in 2010, we, we won't have any reserve from 2010. Uh, sometimes we don't produce at all the Taurasi, the OCG, Radici or Historia in 2002 that was a, a bad vintage because we had the rain right in the middle of October in the period of most important period for maturation of our grapes of Aglianico for Taurasi we were not able to produce any bottle of Taurasi on the whole so uh, Radici Taurasi, Radici Taurasi Riserva and Historia these are the three top red wines uh, Another important innovation that we had uh, in the winemaking process, uh, so I discussed about viticulture in the eight, late 80s, but uh, even in the winemaking process uh, in the late 90s, we had an important innovation uh, in the cellars uh, in the first part of the winemaking process, uh, the maceration. We were able to work on a better extraction process from the skins and from there we had the possibility even to uh, make a, you know a better work on the tannins uh, content because aglianico is the uh, if you look at the analysis you will see that uh, in terms of content of uh, polyphenol and anthocyanin it's it's uh, the highest that we have all over italy among the the red uh, the big red grapes of italy so it means that uh, we have to be extremely careful. On one side, we want to extract. We want to have this contribution in the wine. We, we don't want to miss it. On the other hand, we have to be careful because, of course, if you don't do it properly, you can get problems then uh, to, you know, to handle with, uh, with these uh, uh, wild horses <laughs> in a wine in the tasting. But as I was saying, Taurasi is not the only expression for Aglianico, because we also have uh, some Aglianico wines that are a bit younger, and that are a beautiful expression of the grape and of the terroir. And uh, they are picked just a bit earlier, usually in the, in the second half of October, depending, of course, on the weather conditions. But uh, in the second half of October, we pick these grapes with a little higher acidity, and uh, uh, they are very interesting and pleasant wines and uh, with a bit less contribution of uh, wood so with the fruit a bit more evident they are excellent for uh, uh, a bit more approachable uh, pairing food pairings uh, like a steak uh, usually you know some people think uh, that a steak is a perfect pairing for a big red mm, it's i mean for a big red we we, we propose uh, um, baby goats or uh, we propose uh, some very special things that, that are a bit more peculiar in terms of uh, depth of taste uh, we, we can uh, propose game of course but with the steak Aglianico is beautiful because it's open and the, and the fruit is there and uh, the wine is very complex without being you know too overpowered compared to to the taste uh, of the steak so um, we we propose a, a bottle like Aglianico for this kind of uh, uh, of, of uh, experience of gastronomic experience. So Aglianico can be even um, a little bit more approachable wine. As I was saying before, we have this rosé that is beautiful also from Aglianico, and it comes from uh, uh, Pietra de Fusi estate. That is uh, an, an estate of the family that is. Uh, very close to the Greco di Tufo di Osigi area, at the same elevation of the highest part of our uh, estates in Greco di Tufo. So the conditions of the soil and the microenvironment are similar to the ones of, uh, of a white wine. And uh, that's why we decided from there to um, select the grapes uh, in the past years, to select the grapes that we dedicate to a rosé, a beautiful, beautiful wine. What is important to say is all the wines of the area are extremely interesting after some years of refining. We know that many people look for, you know, the freshness and the fruitness, uh, but uh, these wines uh, uh, are really expressing their best after some years. Even for the rosé, I love my Lacrima Rosa when it's uh, three or four years uh, aged in, in bottle. And you may have another project that involves Alianico in 
what was the historical area of Pompeii that was covered by oh, the volcano. Yeah. Well, yes, in Pompeii we have um, another interesting exper- experiment uh, that started uh, in uh, 1996. I mean, the idea of uh, rain plant all the old vineyards inside the archaeological town of Pompeii, this is the main focus of the project, this is an idea that my father had uh, probably 40 years before, but there was no possibility to make it because there was no law allowing uh, this partnership between uh, you know, a small private firm and, uh, and the government uh, in order to get into the most important monument in the world, probably, that is Pompeii, the archaeological town of Pompeii, one of the most visited, probably the most visited in the world. But uh, in 1994, we had the first Italian law allowing this partnership, this form of collaboration. So in '94, I personally started to work with the the consultants of the superintendents of Pompeii, that is the Ministry of of Cultural Goods of Italy, and uh, we were able to write a contract that was uh, extremely difficult. It took two years to to, to write this this contract, but it's still uh, working now, so it it was worth it. And so in 96, we were able to do the first implantation of the first small vineyards in, in, in the town of Pompeii, in the archaeological town of Pompeii. Um, we made a lot of studies of research, uh, our lab, together with the lab of the superintendents, and we were able to focus a lot on, of course, uh, the, the grape varietals that were in the, the city of Pompeii and all the techniques of cultivation so the training systems that were in the urban training systems compared to the uh, external training systems that were completely different in the urban training system we found uh, a very interesting uh, link to the modernity because uh, there were state uh, training systems and they were uh, huge density of implantation we have uh, four Roman feet per four Roman feet. That is a a bit more than one meter per one meter. So it's something that is really amazing. Together with their lab, we were able to locate all the vines in the area and we made the reimplantation of the vines exactly in the same position. So we have now the reproduction of the ancient viticulture exactly as it was in the past. Of course, with the grapes, grape varietals that are now allowed by the government and that are the evolution of during during a couple of thousand years of the grapes of the past. We were able, of course, to do studies on the DNA of uh, the seeds uh, and the material, the wooden material that uh, uh, the superintendents gave us, also on the contents of the amphoras. And we were able to do the analysis on the contents of the amphoras also. So it was extremely interesting as a project of research. And uh, we were able to start uh, reimplanting red grapes mainly. We have a small lab in which we have a line per each ancient grape varietal of Campania. So we have both whites and reds. But then we focused on mainly the red grapes and we started the project uh, implanting a blend of Piedi Rosso and Shashinoso, two ancient uh, typical varietals of that time, mainly Romans, uh, Roman grapes, <clears throat> even if we know that Aglianico was extremely important in the past, but uh, probably the conditions of the environment at the beginning uh, did not allow the first implantation of Aglianico in the form of the state uh, training system in the gardens of the houses as it was. So the first Stage of the project was focused on this blend of Piedi Rosso and Chascinoso, and we came out with with the first ha- harvest uh, in 2001 uh, with a wine that is called Villa dei Misteri, from the name of the villa on, on which uh, walls you find all these uh, frescoes uh, describing <clears throat> all the wine culture in Roman times. So Villa dei Misteri 2001 was the first vintage. We are talking about uh, wine that is uh, an icon more than wine. It's produced in... Uh, one one thousand about one thousand samples per year, and uh, we went on in this project for some years. Uh, then the the government asked us, the superintendents asked us to double the project to increase uh, the uh, vineyards in other areas that were not uh, available at the beginning of the project. And in the second part, that is not exactly in the gardens or the houses or in the foro boario or in the amphitheater, but is a little bit. Uh, 
uh, on a side that is more open, we were able to do another experiment. We made the, the reimplantation uh, with the bush training system closer to the soil. That was a condition that allowed to implant Aglianico there. Consider that uh, in, in the Pompeii area we have uh, an elevation that is... Uh, much lower than the Irpinia area. Irpinia, we are in the mountains, where Aglianico gives its best. Uh, in Pompeii area, we are close to the sea, so no elevation, and, and it's, uh, it's, a, it's a plain condition. So um, the soil that is so fertile due to 2,000 years of ash on the top caused an explosion of a, a grape variety like Aglianico that needed a, a bit more humidity, so it was very tough to get Aglianico to maturation in that condition, and uh, we we chose this different training system in order to keep in order to keep uh, the vines closer to the humidity of the soil. And so now the new blend of uh, the Villa dei Misteri in the current vintages will be a blend of three different vintages. It will be Aglianico, Piedirosso, and Chascinoso. And it will be at the beginning it was a, an eighty more or less an 80% of Piedirosso and a 20% of Chascinoso. Now in the in the new version, it will be about 40-45% of Aglianico and then 40% of Piedirosso and the rest of Chascinoso. Chascinoso is the most complicated grape. It's, it's not very regular, you know, year per year in the production. So the contribution of Chascinoso is not that important. Uh, it's important mainly for an historical point of view than uh, an organolectic contribution. And what about Peter Rosso? How does Peter Rosso differ than Alianico? Completely different. Well, we have two different uh, biotypes of Piedirosso, family of families of biotypes of Piedirosso. One on the coast, uh, on the Vesuvio uh, slopes, uh, that is uh, very nice and uh, round and delicate and silky and velvet, and uh, it's. Uh, it's the grape that we uh, use for 100% Lacrima Christi del Vesuvio DOC. That is another prestigious appellation of Campania uh, we have been working with for, uh, for, for more than a century. Um, in the inland, in the mountains, Piedirosso suffers more. The biotype is different, is less regular in production, suffers the excursion of temperatures more than, much more than Aglianico. And uh, so probably in Irpinia, the experiences of Piedirosso are less interesting than the ones on the coast. You know, the, the roundness and softness uh, uh, of uh, the wines uh, made on uh, Vesuvio slopes uh, is uh, very pleasant, very uh, interesting uh, in some sense. But uh, if you try to change the condition and move to Irpinia with the same grapes, you can get some important problems. I mean, we have had an important experiment uh, um, concerning the, the blending of Aglianico and Piedirosso in the past in Irpinia with Naturalis Historia. The beginning of these wines, uh, of this wine, uh, we had the blend of 85% of Aglianico and 15% of Piedirosso. It was a Piedirosso from Irpinia, uh, elevated in Irpinia. And uh, after some years, uh, I personally decided to move to 100% Aglianico. It could have been called a Taurasi DOCG even at the beginning because the rules allow to use a, a maximum 15% of uh, other different uh, you know, traditional grapes of the area. But uh, for Taurasi, we prefer to focus on Aglianico because it's a wine that is thought for a, the long run. And in the long run, Piedirosso goes down. Piedirosso has these very nice uh, red fruits at the beginning, very fresh. But in the long run, Aglianico comes out strongly with all this, uh, you know, complexity, with all this depth and uh, and width uh, of taste, and uh, you know, Piedirosso goes on the bottom of the, you know, feelings and and emotions at the tasting, and uh, at the end, uh, in Irpinia, it's better to focus on the so many different expressions of Aglianico. You know that one of the most important uh, uh, research projects that we are driving during these uh, years is a new uh, a new generation of clone selections uh, of course for all our top grapes in the past uh, decades we have made in uh, partnership with the government the typical clonal selection allowing uh, uh, to select some biotypes for greco for fiano for uh, aglianico and so for falangina all these uh, clones uh, are used now to improve the quality of the, the average quality of the whole uh, uh, district of production but uh, this is a, a different uh, point of the 
history of Aglianico because we were able to select uh, 30 different biotypes uh, of uh, Prephyloxera Aglianico coming from a very old uh, uh, vineyard. And we started uh, working on those uh, biotypes uh, in partnership with some researchers and we were able to compare them and then to put them in analysis to uh, to see which of them were free from any disease, of course, because you cannot have uh, problems of virus if you want to do the homologation of a new clones. So we were able, after, at the end of this uh, uh, project, we were able to select just two of them that were completely uh, sane and, and uh, extremely interesting at the, the first uh, micro vinification experiments. We reimplanted the first vineyard in our uh, Mirabella uh, estate, the first vineyard that is completely based on these two clones. Uh, the vineyard is called Redimore, and the wine that is a blending of these two uh, biotypes of these two clones uh, is named Redimore. It's an, an Aglianico Irpinia DOC. And these two clones will be the first two clones of Aglianico to bear my father's name. They are going to be called Aglianico Antonio Mastro Berardino, and they will be 418 and 421 the codes. They are going to be homologated by the government. Uh, the process is going on and probably in next year it will be finished but the wine is already there to get an experience of how time for wine is circular it's not you know and it's not a line because uh, the most ancient biotypes of Aglianico are appear at the tasting so modern in terms of roundness and softness so this is uh, an experience, is an experience uh, to be made, uh, not only in terms of pleasantness of the wine, but even in terms of education. You've talked about how vines are trained in different parts of the Campania to maximize what you're looking for. You've talked about how different vine training developed over time and how you've gone back and, and looked at historical vine training and tried to replicate it for historical uh, bottlings. How has it changed in the region generally? Were there styles that were once more popular that are less popular today in the Campania for a grape like Alianico? Well, yes, many changes in the past uh, 40, 50 years, many changes, because uh, uh, traditionally Alianico had, had uh, a very um, old uh, way of training uh, the vines uh, with a very, very low uh, density uh, in the vineyard. And uh, this... Uh, approach had has been like this uh, for all up up to the late 70s the turning point is 1980 that is the period in which uh, we have uh, i mean of course in our property we already uh, were using the spalliere we were using the more evolved uh, training systems but uh, what is important in an area is is to give uh, for all uh, the district uh, the same approach to viticulture in order to increase and improve the average quality of the whole uh, of the whole district and of the, the whole uh, DOCG so the change uh, happened in the 80s the big change for uh, Taurasi but it took quite a long time we have uh, many old uh, farmers there that you know resist to innovation sometimes thinking that innovation is uh, in some sense uh, a loss of uh, their roots of their tradition while uh, of course uh, as we all know now uh, the technical knowledge in viticulture allow us to have uh, a beautiful expression of the terroir of the typical terroir and and uh, to select and preserve those ancient characters in the in the new grapes and wines. So, uh, for uh, Taurasi, the Cordone Speronato, for Greco uh, and Fiano, the, the typical uh, modern Guyot, are uh, most useful technical expression for, for current viticulture. And um, um, in the past, we have... Uh, we have a traditional way to train the vines in Irpinia that was uh, the ancient uh, raggiera that uh, uh, you know can be seen uh, it's, uh, it's it's a very very old uh, can be still seen in some very old vineyards in the area and was not extremely good to get you know to get a good uh, good maturation of uh, of the grapes uh, but we know this 
extraordinary terroir allowed us to have great wines even in not perfect condition of you know technical evolution in viticulture this is something that really amazes me personally <laughs> did you see a change after the earthquake that you mentioned in 1980 and what were some other effects from that earthquake and what was the scope of that earthquake how big was it well 1980 earthquake was terrible in the area many damages and people killed in the area of Avellino in Irpinia and um, villages completely destroyed completely destroyed it was uh, one of the worst earthquakes ever had all over Italy uh, so it was a very very strong um, problem for the whole population consider that uh, in the days after the earthquake uh, our winery had problems uh, in the in the family building family palace that is right on the top of the cellars the cellars were all mm, good because we have a vault system that protected the cellars but um, the, the the building of the family had a lot of damages where i live now still now a lot of damages and uh, and uh, the winery became uh, uh, a point of distribution of all the you know the the first things and needs for for the population for the local population so uh, food and uh, and clothes and uh, and boost and uh, all the things we were we are uh, in november 23rd and uh, we had snow exactly a couple of days after it was it became really uh, tough and terrible situation um we have the taurasi reserva 1980 November 23, you have to consider that the grapes were just in, the wine was fermenting, and uh, we have this Taurasi 1980, that the tasting that is extremely wild, uh, interesting because it was left for five days without any control, and uh, it's, uh, it's for, for, uh, for me, it's nice today to, in vertical tastings, to present even the 1980 vintage, because every time I do it, it's uh, it comes out so so different from any other vintage of the tasting and uh, it reminds me a very important uh, moment of our life not only as you know business point of view but also for the family it was a tough period my father named the, the new project of viticulture vaglianico radici meaning roots due to the earthquake it was a kind of a reaction against this very very bad uh, evolution or involution of uh, of the area due to this earthquake that uh, he said uh, the roots of the family are here we will go on researching our uh, path uh, linked to the the, the, the the tradition and the origin of the family uh, that are more than you know 2000 to 200 uh, years long and the, the origins of the wines and grapes of the area that are more than 2000 years long so it was really an important turning point for uh, for the family and i think also for these wines because it gave you know every time it's like this uh, in, the, in the very difficult moments you know that determination motivation the strength uh, of people make the difference you're in a unique position as a owner and ceo of a winery in that you have vintages stretching back for almost 100 years that you can taste of your family's wine from the same area. Besides vintages that we've talked about, like 1968 or 1980 or the 1971 Reserva is often spoken of, what are some vintages that have, as you've tasted these wines over the course of your life, really stood out for you as meaningful or notable? Well, I would add, uh, first of all, the 1928 that was... Uh, a beautiful experience of tasting for me. I tasted two bottles of 28 in the last uh, probably three years. They were both excellent. Uh, one was was uh, tasted here in the, in the United States because uh, it's it is strange, but uh, the most important vertical tasting of Taurasi ever made in the world happened in New York. And it was three years ago, and I had uh, this vertical going from 2006 preview of Taurasi back to 28. It was the older, the oldest uh, uh, tasting in in that event. Uh, so 28 was uh, amazing because of this uh, roundness, uh, delicacy on the palate. It was really a wine, uh, extremely, extremely interesting on this side. But uh, not only has uh, you know a piece of art. I really felt, together with the people that was tasting with me, 
that they, they, that bottle was still expressing itself as a food wine, as a wine that would have been excellent with something to eat. I mean, for a, a normal use, this was amazing. And I think this is the best message Taurasi can give. Then uh, we have bottles from the 30s, from the 40s, that uh, express uh, very well. I mean, the 30s better than the 40s. 40s uh, we have some bottles from 1941, but that was a very, very bad period in which uh, Phylloxera had uh, damaged uh, many vineyards because Phylloxera in southern Italy, in our area, arrived uh, in the 30s of uh, the 20th century, so much later than France or Piedmont or other parts of it. And um, then we have uh, interesting bottles from the 30s, but the 30s were a very bad period uh, because there was the closure of all the markets for Italian producers, uh, not only for the wines, because there was a fascism uh, that uh, was a period of autarchy in which, uh, let's say, the Italian empire uh, was uh, focused on the colonia, uh, Africans. Uh, so uh, in that period, uh, consider that up to late 20s, our markets were North America, Latin America, and so on. Even with the big crisis, financial crisis of the 20s, we have two different very bad crisis, one starting from uh, from uh, the center of Europe, from Switzerland, uh, in uh, the beginning of the 20s, and then the very famous Wall Street crash in, in 29. So the 20s were a period uh, of, uh, uh, at the beginning, it was still a good success for the winery distribution uh, abroad. But then I see in the letters of my uh, my grandfather writing writing to his brother, he was, he was uh, like his father, he was a pioneer, he was always traveling uh, in the world promoting the wine. So he describes the conditions uh, you know, of the markets uh, in, in Latin America, in North America, suffering for this uh, uh, bad condition of finance, mainly. But uh, then in the 30s, uh, in the 30s, we have uh, the new destinations for Mastro Berardino wines that were Masawa in Africa, that were uh, Alessandria d'Egitto, Il Cairo. Those, are, those were the customers at that time. We've got plenty of letters of people uh, writing from the restaurant business from Africa and no more from the Americas at that time. So the 40s were the period in which we have the World War II, 39 to 45. Then I have my father that, uh, you know, my, my, gra- my grandfather died in, uh, in 1945. So this was really a very difficult period. So I, when I taste bottles coming from those years, uh, I really, you know, feel uh, a very strong emotion. Then we have this relaunch, as I said before, of our viticulture in the late 40s and beginning of 50s. In this period, uh, uh, my father starts influencing a lot uh, viticulture and tries to make an evolution. Uh, 58 is probably the first very successful vintage of Taurasi. But the success does not come very early. It comes during the 60s, when uh, my family has been able to reopen uh, mainly North American market. That was a richer market. It was a market that was available to collect older vintages of big uh, wines, uh, red wines from Italy. And so 61 and then 68 were the big legitimation worldwide for the Taurasi appellation again. So 61 is a vintage I should be seeking out. 61 is beautiful. Uh, I don't know if there's much available around. 68 is a bit more, uh, a bit simpler to find. But I was in Boston a few days ago and uh, I had a very nice wine dinner in a place that still have uh, 68 and some bottles from the 70s that are beautiful, available on the wine list. I mean, uh, and uh, it happens in New York also, many, uh, many. I wouldn't say many, but some restaurants that have a long tradition uh, love to present, still present some bottles from the 60s that are uh, that are extremely well kept, I must say. I find bottles that are beautifully preserved uh, in, during the aging. So it's, it's really interesting for me, for me to do. Yeah, I know I know the wines coming from my private cellar. 
I got about uh, 3,000 bottles of uh, different, you know, vintages going back, and uh, they are all in a beautiful shape. But a bottle from 61 or 58, if you're able to find it on the market, you, you can't, it's difficult to say, you know, what are the conditions in the bottle. Anyway. In the 1970s, what are some of the standout years for you uh, for the Tarasi? Well, 71 was a very important vintage. Uh, we produced this uh, special label, Il Fondatore, because it was another symbolic uh, vintage uh, and it had a very big success for us. And 77 was was a beautiful, beautiful vintage. In 77, the Reserva was produced with a special selection labeled with uh, an art piece uh, from a painter, very famous fam- painter from Italy, Salvatore Fiume, the original is in the cellar, and uh, Salvatore Fiume, this uh, this painting was dedicated to the family in a, in a wine uh, competition, and so my father, it happened uh, in the first half of the 70s, so my father used uh, this, uh, this painting to identify probably the best vintage of the decade, 77 was the best vintage of that decade. And what about some of the white wines that you make? The Fiano, the Greco, the Lacoma Christi. How would I talk about these wines? What should I know about them? The most important uh, white grape in the area is for sure Fiano. Fiano is the ancient Vitis Apiana, described by the Roman writers. Apiana meaning uh, uh, loved by bees. Apes in Latin uh, is the word uh, bees. And uh, due to, of course, the 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 the, the sugar, the the you know, of the of the fruit. This was the description in the in the in the old books. And uh, Fiano is extremely interesting for some reasons mainly. First of all, uh, it has uh, a, a light aromatic contribution to the taste. It's not an aromatic grape varietal, but it, it has this uh, character. And then it has some beautiful. Uh, this this beautiful acidity that makes uh, this wine due also to the environment, of course, that gives this wine the possibility to age perfectly and also genetically. It is uh, the most ageable white wine that we have. We do verticals going back 30 years easily with a Fiano without any change of color in the wine. And this is really amazing for a white wine. I mean, Irpinia, in some sense, has uh, some peculiarities that are due to this uh, ageability of the wines that should be probably um, communicated a bit more among the wine lovers because um, we we try to do it, uh, I must say, because uh, if we are able to propose wines like Fiano di Avellino or Greco di Tufo after five, six, seven years, we are able to make people experience a completely different world of tasting for these grapes and wines. So Fiano has this characteristic. It's, uh, we, we, we produce, uh, uh, of course, uh, we've got four estates in the DOCG area of Fiano di Avellino, so we produce different selections of Fiano. And then we produce also, every year we, we try to put on aside some, some cases of each vintage, and after five, six years, we are proposing a different line that is called Vintage, both for Fiano and for Greco, that is uh, dedicated to this project to increase and improve the communication of the refined white wines from Irpini. Greco di Tufo, the OCG, is uh, probably a bit more approachable compared to Fiano. Fiano is a very austere, very elegant wine. It's not a big communicator of, of itself, while Greco is so open. Greco had this huge success in the 70s and 80s, due to the success of uh, the Mediterranean cuisine based on seafood on the you know fried uh, calamari and and so on this is this was the, the you know typical pairings of, of uh, those times that still make these grecos so interesting and so well known greco is completely different from fiano uh, greco um, is the the most red of our white wines we say if you if you're in the uh, harvest period and you come to the cellars to see the first the start of the wine making process you will see the color of greco that is much darker than one of fiano and uh, so we have uh, a different uh, tasting profile for these two grapes another important thing of the area is this that all these wines are completely different one from the other so in fiano you have this uh, 
uh, nice uh, white flowers, pear, and uh, the finish of hazelnut. It's very, very uh, typical of uh, the Fiano grapes. And on the other hand, uh, with Greco, you have this peach, apricot, and the almond finish. And so they are completely different wines. Uh, the body of Greco di Tufo is amazing. I mean, you can really pair it uh, easily with a versatility that is outstanding for this wine, with the uh, white meats, uh, with pastas, uh, and so on. Not only with the, with the fried seafood and so on. Uh, for Fiano, I would suggest a very nice white fish, uh, something much more delicate and elegant, uh, because, you know, Fiano must be kept clean in the tasting, in my personal opinion. For us, it's very important to make people focus on the differences. Uh, this was an approach of my father starting in the late 50s, beginning of 60s, when he had to make this selection of the grapes. Uh, uh, he focused a lot on the 100% vinification in, from each wine district. So from Fiano, 100% Fiano, from Greco, 100% Greco. Because, of course, they are unusual grapes. Of course, there are not you know, many people in the world that know much about these grapes. And so we have to help them to make the differences, to memorize the differences. Um, probably this was the reason for even for the success of these wines. You know, Irpinia is so unusual because in the same uh, small wine district, you have three DOCGs. There are other parts of Italy in which you, you can get, you know, more DOCGs in the same area. Uh, it happens uh, in both in Piemonte and in Toscana, but they are focused on the same grape. In our case, we have three DOCGs and each of them is based on a completely different grape. Fiano for Fiano di Avellino, Greco for Greco di Tufo and Aglianico for Taurasi. This is a treasury patrimony for uh, the area in, in terms of uh, viticultural base platform. And... Uh, Apart from Fiano and Greco, we also have other white grapes that are extremely interesting. One, the third is Falangina. Falangina is produced in the Sannio area, a bit on the north of Irpinia, and uh, in an area that is uh, about 100 meters of average elevation lower than Irpinia, so a bit higher in humidity. Conditions there are not as uh, elected as in Irpinia. And traditionally, Falangina was considered uh, as a uh, a minor brother compared to the other two because it was an, considered an easier wine, uh, more an ordinary and everyday consumption wine for the uh, local people in the region. Then we uh, started in the uh, beginning of 90s to do experiments also on viticulture of Falangina. And uh, uh, we saw that there was an opportunity of a big improvement of quality for this uh, wine working in the vineyard, as we do for all our wines. I mean... Uh, as I was saying, Irpinia is uh, interesting if you work in the vineyard more, in the more than in the cellars. Uh, if you uh, protect the differences of the different harvests, of, the, of what nature gives you, and uh, if you don't make a strong correction, because uh, we must uh, uh, help people to understand what is the variety of Irpinia. So Falangina was cultivated with a very low density and with a very high yield. These two conditions completely changed in the 90s, uh, gave us the possibility to start selecting a very good quality of uh, Falangina grapes. Then we started investing uh, in Irpinia, uh, producing a crew of Falangina that is called Mora Bianca, that is really over the top, and uh, it's at the same level of our crew of Fiano di Avellina and Greco di Tufo. So this means that uh, if you work properly in the vineyard, you get the possibility to make a very a good uh, quality results uh, uh, for this grape that is extremely interesting, very pleasant, uh, with a very nice floral and fruitness taste and uh, uh, with a good uh, long finish, with a good complexity. And now Falangina is a very good uh, support sometimes because uh, it's just a bit less complicated to understand uh, in terms of approach to viticulture of our of our region of Campania. Then we have a fourth, I would say family, that is the one of Coda di Volpe. That is, uh, as in the Piedi Rosso case, is quite wide and various because we have a, a family of Coda di Volpe grapes uh, on the coast that come from mainly from the Vesuvio area 
And then we have a Coda di Volpe from Irpinia that is completely different. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, completely different. And uh, as for Piedirosso, we think that uh, Coda di Volpe, f- in terms of a family, es- expresses better on the course. So we work on a Coda di Volpe 100% uh, in the Lacrima Cristi del Vesuvio area uh, to produce the Lacrima Cristi del Vesuvio Bianco DOC. And uh, we are not uh, trusting a lot the the Irpinian part of the Coda di Volpe, uh, even if there are some experiments that in the past has been int- uh, been interesting even in our in our uh, production, but uh, we are focusing more on the characters of Vesuvio soil. It is a bit more sandy soil, more open soil compared to the you know to the limestone and clay that we have uh, in the mountains of Irpinia that are probably. Uh, less compatible with the uh, with the characters of the Coda di Volpe family grapes. Piero Mastro Berardino of the Mastro Berardino Winery, thank you so much for sharing with us your world. <laughs> thank you. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.